0: Good evening, everybody. I will just introduce Pavel to you. A little background on his education. Pavel has received his PhD in math and physics at the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology. He did a postdoc at Michael Waterman's laboratory in 19, starting in 1990. That's in the uh, Department of Mathematics at the University of Southern California. Uh, he was a two years postdoc researcher there then he, in 1992 he took on a position of as an associate professor at Penn State University and 95 after only three years there at Penn State he moved back to USC as a professor of mathematics and computer science and molecular biology uh, and since 2000 he has been in UCSD where he is the um, Ronald Taylor Professor of Computer Science and Engineering. He is a very prolific researcher. He has almost 35,000 citations of his paper, an h index of 79, which is quite formidable. He is also, in addition to being the Ronald Taylor Professor of Computer Science and Engineering, he is the director of the NIH National Center for Computational Mass Spectrometry at UCSD. He is a Howard Hughes Medical Institute professor in 2006. He is elected for the um, Association for uh, Computing Machinery, ACM, as a fellow since 2010 for contributions to algorithms for genome rearrangement, DNA sequencing, and proteomics. 2017, he was recognized for his accomplishment as a senior scientist by the um, ISCB, which is the International Society for Computational Biology, which basically picks, once a year, a prominent scientist in the area. In this area, they um, chose Pavel to uh, bestow their award. In their uh, description of why they chose their awards, they say, well, this award recognizes leaders in the fields of computational biology and bioinformatics for their significant research, education, and service contribution. Pavel Pevsner is being honored as the 2017 winner of this award, um, and um, they also mention that there are few subfields in bioinformatics where Pevsner has not made a seminal contribution. His work is guided by applying combinatorials, combinatorial and algorithmic ideas to solving problems in bioinformatics, most notably in genome rearrangements, um, and actually Pavel actually gave a talk about that just about an hour, an hour or two ago. Fragment assembly, uh, fragment assembly and algorithmic mass spectrometry. His algorithmic ideas have, have been incorporated into many of the tools in the field. Now, so in addition to all that, in the last, what was it, three years, two years, uh, that Pavel has been uh, investing heavily into online education. And that's what he's going to talk about today. Thank you
1: Uri for a very kind introduction. Uh, allow me to tell you that Uri was in my lab, but let me tell you a few things about how Uri ended up in my lab. Uri actually was a professor when we first met. And he came to me and he told, well, I really want to work in this emerging area of bioinformatics. And I told Uri, if you're a professor, and he was a professor of mathematics at UC Riverside. And I told, well, it won't work. You're too busy doing mathematics. And then Uri told me, well, maybe I can become your postdoc. So Uri actually resigned from his professorship and joined my lab to be, to be a postdoc. Uh, and then I think two, three years later, he became a professor at Cornell, at that time in bioinformatics. Anyway, I. D- It's a pleasure to speak here. Thank you so much for organizing it. Uh, Let me start by suggesting that it shouldn't be a lecture. It should be a discussion. I know that most of you will disagree with everything. I will be telling And if you have questions or concerns, please raise your hands and we'll start discussing it. And in exchange, I also will be asking you questions, so be prepared. Anyway, if i let me start, my question number one. What is the most popular medical technique in the history of humanity? Here's the answer, bloodletting. It only stopped 100 years ago because it was absolutely useless. But why it existed for 2000 years? Because there was no alternative technology to test it against. What is the most popular educational technology in the last thousand years? Classroom lecture. And admittedly, in thousand years, the topics slightly change, uh, and the classes' sizes increased, but we still do the same thing. We work in the classroom, and we talk like I'm doing today. And I don't know why we think that it's a good thing. Maybe because there is no alternative technique that would tell us there is something better. And do you recognize this uh, picture? Do you know where it come from? You saw this picture, most of you I'm sure saw this picture before. It came from this brilliant movie about brothers Korn, Serious Man, and this is a professor, and the movie doesn't end well. There is a catastrophe coming in. And I will argue today that there is industrial revolution that is about to happen in the technology of education. If, and if you're a professor today, a little bit younger than I am, I would really worry about the future. And I also wanted to quote Sidney Pressey, who said, education is the one major activity which has thus far not applied ingenuity to the solution of its problem. We We professors, we didn't invent in the field of educational technology. We are doing the same thing all over again. There is hardly any problem. Okay, there is a PowerPoint as compared to Chakram. By the way, Chakram was a great invention in mid-19th century. Before this, people did not know, or it did not come to their mind, that education may be improving with the introduction of a chalkboard, okay? Uh, And, oops. And I want to ask you, what is in common between all these professions? They are all extinct, or almost extinct, due to technology innovation. And I will argue today that our profession is at the same danger that the taxi driver. So let me start. Let me start by discussing the classroom. And before we discuss it, let's pay attention to the fact that the largest university today is Coursera, online content delivery engine. 20 million students on Coursera alone. There are huge activity in this area. There are content delivery companies everywhere. And Coursera, in fact, is not largest anymore. It's a Chinese company that is largest content delivery provider. And to the point that there are now online master of science degree in computer science from Georgia Tech, one of top ten computer science universities in the world. And guess what? Rigorous study from Harvard has proven that education of student, computer science student, and this is a profession with six-digit salary, of course, right after graduation, is better in the online program than in the classroom on campus. So what does it mean? Is college doomed? Of course not. There were many good critics of online education, and there are many, many points that this critic argue wrong with this ongoing online revolution. And by the way, online revolution and education started only. Five years ago, 2012, Coursera started and Harvard and MIT invested $60 million into putting their offerings online. So, uh, what is the argument of people who argue against uh, online education? Classroom instruction is an optimal form of learning. There is nothing better than what I'm doing right now talking to you, even if you don't ask me many questions. And 30 years ago, Benjamin Blum debunked this dogma and demonstrated the traditional one-to-many classroom is minimally effective. Who is Benjamin Blum? The giant of educational psychology of the last century. And he had many arguments, but his main argument is undefensible They are all different. And it makes no sense to expect all students to take the same amount of time to achieve the same educational objectives. Uh, And there are other arguments. The other argument is that classroom education is personal. You can talk to professor, professor walks in the room and there are sparks uh, uh, flying around. So classroom, education, classroom instruction in difference from MOOCs provides uniquely personalized learning. Give me a break. Uri, and you teach in what, 1,500 student uh, classroom? What is the size of your classroom? No, mine is 60. Six? 60, yeah, yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, I see. Anyway, at my university, two, 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 three hundred people classroom is a norm, particularly at the introductory courses. So, to tell you the truth, most of my colleagues agree that it is criminal to teach serious, complex subjects in classrooms like this, of this size. Uh, And, What about the evidence otherwise that these large classrooms are minimally effective, that they lose many students during the process of education? And I have to make a disclaimer. Everything that I'm talking about relates to the topics I know something about. These are so-called STEM topics, science, technology, engineering, math. These are complex topics such that if you didn't understand something, If you had a learning breakdown at some point, you cannot go further. You can very well leave the classroom and do something, drink coffee, because it's hopeless. After a learning breakdown, you cannot proceed. Now, how many of you in STEM classes, who are like mathematicians, engineers, computer scientists, how many of you have ever experienced a learning breakdown during collection? Quite a number. And these are apparently brilliant people, professors sitting, many professors are sitting here. So what is happening is most of learning in these disciplines are actually overcoming the learning breakdown. And most of learning is happening outside the classroom. It is happening solving homework, thinking hard, trying to figure out what went wrong, trying to overcome breakdown. So what we are doing in classroom is anyway just to keep of an iceberg. Many more hours are spent outside the classroom. And we leave students essentially practically without support at this most important time for learning. So to summarize, and this is not my slide, this is what educational psychologists Believe today, most instructors teach to only a certain percentile of the class. Optimistic estimate, maybe 30% of the class. Instructors lack information about the learning breakdowns of individual students, and individual students do not receive the immediate feedback after their breakdown. Let me tell you about my personal struggle with the Bloom conundrum, and I'm a poster child of the Bloom conundrum. So, uh, this is my high school student, my high school teacher. At the same time, it's a brilliant uh, Russian mathematician, one of the biggest, uh, largest figures in the modern mathematics of the last century and founder of probability theory, Andrei Kolmogorov. At the ripe age of 50, he decided he will not do research again and will only work on education. He convinced Soviet Politburo, whomever was responsible at that time, to establish a network of schools for gifted children. And I had immense pleasure to have Kolmogorov twice a week in my high schools for two years, delivering lectures. Now, before this was a boarding school. Before this boarding school, I was bored to death in my classes. I basically tried to skip as many classes as possible before my high school. But then high school came in, and I realized I'm so much behind. I had continuous learning breakdown, not only me everybody in my high school. Because Karl Magorov, being a genius mathematician, spoke twice faster than a normal person. <laughs> I'm sorry I forgot to bring, I, next time I will deliver this talk, I will make a photograph of my lecture notes. They don't look like lecture notes at all. They are written by calligraphic, calligraphically written, because it was, would take the work of the whole class if lecture was in the morning, By the evening, we would have a lecture note, decoded and written uh, after the lecture. And then I went to university. At the university, I was roughly equally bored. I actually remember fully attending only a few classes. So, uh, And after I joined, I became a university professor, I started doing exactly the same thing the system did with me. I was working in the classroom, delivering lecture, and once again, at least 50% of people didn't understand what I'm doing, having learning breakdowns somewhere in the middle, okay? Now, five years ago, I went for my sabbatical in Russia, and I had the possibility to start a new lab. And Russian government provided me with a unique opportunity to basically hire whomever I want with all, I I could hire people from Microsoft Russia and Google Russia by simply matching their salaries and offering them something more interesting to do. So I found brilliant people. And I started working with them. At the time when I started, most of them were, some of them were even undergraduate students, but every change of the lab was 23, 24 years. And I gave them one of the most difficult problems in modern bioinformatics, building genome assembler. It's an extremely tough algorithmic problem, and they succeeded. Their assembler is now the most cited assembler in the world, 1,700 citations in five years, and it is the most cited paper in Russia, but it's also the most cited paper at UCSD where I work in the last five years. And then I started talking to them and interesting thing that actually changed my view of what needs to be done and changed what I'm doing with respect to education, they were very proud about their high school education. And they went to the same system of school that Kalmagorov founded. And amazingly, the system is still working well. But they're not proud at all about their university education. And there was no sources. Professors were 20 years behind of the latest advances in computer science. So they essentially educated themselves. And what I thought is that it is very interesting, kind of its contrast, because in United States, high school education is not very good, but people catch up at universities. In Russia, it's completely ob- opposite. High school education is great, at least in this top school. University education deteriorated incredibly in the last quarter of the century. And if you look at this table of proficiency of students in mathematics across various countries, US is so much behind, many countries, including Australia. And it leads to a big problem in my computer science department, and why? U.S. behind because there is a shortage of qualified high school teachers, and poor preparation in math and computer science essentially cuts out the number of people with engineering degrees in U.S. Many students drop because if you don't know mathematics in high school, it's very hard to get an engineering degree uh, afterwards. And I started to think about basically about this Russian talented student. What can we do? to help them to learn despite the fact that their university programs are really behind. And that's how I came to thinking about online education. And that's how I started working on MOOCs. Now, despite the fact that this is a talk about MOOCs, I actually do not like MOOCs. I think MOOCs are extremely deficient and I will try to explain why. So so on one hand, we have explosive growth, of, and MOOC, by the way, is massive open online course. On the one hand, there is explosive growth of MOOCs, and University of Sydney offered, uh, now has 10 MOOCs. Uh, uh, Offered, my university probably has 40, MOOCs currently. Uh, uh, and on the other hand, some brilliant people like Moshe Bardi, one of the leading computer scientists, uh, wrote a paper, Will MOOC Destroy Academia? His argument, and I kind of sympathize with, them, with him, because this is something that I call a hoarding class. And maybe this class works, for self-improvement, for classes, I don't know, in art history, when a professor can energize the audience. But this class won't work in my discipline, in computer science. Learning breakdown will multiply immediately. But what is MOOC? MOOC is simply an amplified version of this class. Instead of 1,000 people in the room, there are 100,000 people. In the room. And lion's share of MOOC, maybe 95% of MOOCs, are essentially these hoarding classes at scale. The direct equivalent of online classes, of offline classes, videotaped. And that's why, why Vardy said if I had my wish, I would wake a wind and make MOOC disappear. And somebody else said something very similar 500 years ago. This was a big thinker of 15th century who believed that printed book will disappear when they came up. But we know that printed books survived, so what was wrong with both of this man? I think what was wrong is that they were early at the early stages of the technology revolution, of the industrial revolution with respect to book printing. And of course, where looked look at beautiful illuminated Renaissance manuscript, and the first printed Bible with his many errors. Of course, he thought illuminated manuscript is better, despite the fact that it was extremely expensive to produce. And in the same way, he published his paper just two years after the MOOC revolution started. So he could not anticipate where it's going, probably. So what would you prefer for your children? Would you prefer this hoarding classroom or a class like this in a small liberal arts university that very few people in the United States can afford because of a huge tuition? Probably something on the right, but I would prefer this. But I cannot afford to pay for this for my children. It is very expensive. And that's why I argue we need this. And my goal is basically to transform an impersonal MOOC into an equivalent of one of one experience with a teacher. And I want to address learning breakdown better than this teacher. I was this teacher. I know how difficult it is. I am this teacher, actually. I know how difficult it is to figure out oh, what is the learning breakdown. You need to talk a lot with the students, and sometimes students can't explain what's going on in their head. Anyway, so what we proposed is, instead of massive, open online course, we wanted to develop and now develop massive, adaptive, interactive test, text or made, and I want to tell you what I mean by this. Uh, but let me first tell you what I learned, what, was my, what I personally learned after this, uh, during this project. Before this project published, I published three textbooks, and Book in the Middle was adopted in over 100 universities uh, worldwide as the primary textbook for bioinformatics. When I started the project, I realized how bad all these books are. I realized how many breakdowns they had embedded actually in the structure of this book. And that's why we started working on a new book, which, to the best of my knowledge, was actually the first MOOC book. I believe it is the first textbook they came out of MOOC Revolution. It was designed specifically for MOOCs and co author to this Philip Compo, who is now professor was my student, now professor at Carnegie Mellon University. And uh, my previous book were adopted in many universities, but I never had this rate of adoption that I saw uh, with this new book. I think Australia is the only continent that has not adopted this book yet. (laughs) Despite the fact that I have two people from my lab now in Australian universities, a number of places in Africa adopted it. But (laughs) maybe, maybe because right. Anyway, uh, and this book also meant the end of a classroom, as I know it. So I am a professor at university. I'm supposed to teach classes. Every year, of course, that's why I'm paid salary. And I, let me tell something to you. In the last three years, I haven't given a single lecture. And I haven't been fired yet. <laughs> why? Because I do not believe in lectures. So let me explain a little bit more. So, and I, when I walk in the class, it's the very first meeting of the students in the class, I'm explaining them my hidden agenda. I want to prove to my students that they don't need me. So my goal is to prove that university essentially doesn't need me. And then maybe, just maybe, they don't need you. University (laughs) doesn't need you. Anyway, so what happened? This is not from my course. As I told, there are over 50 universities teaching from my book. This is University of Maryland, one of the top universities in computer science, very prominent place in bioinformatics. This is from class syllabus. Class meeting times will not be lecture times. So the students' learning is based not on classroom lecture, but on materials that were developed for our course and classroom lecture for getting to know students and discussions with them. So now allow me to explain what a mate is. And please interrupt me if there are any questions. There are four important companies that make it very different from a traditional class. First, this is an image of a professor, romantic image of a professor going to In exotic locale, 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 I think it's Paris or something, on sabbatical to write a book or to to prepare a course. This image is gone. I believe it's so outdated it won't exist anymore. And when MOOC revolution started, professors complained that MOOCs take so much time. And there was a study where somebody reported that average time spent developing MOOC is hundreds of hours. It is considered low by Professor standard. But can investing hundreds of hours make a disruptive change in the technology of education? Of course not. So we invested 7,000 hours, over 7,000 hours in developing just one course. And it means a large team. That include many people, developers of content delivery system, programmers, artists, uh, software development for the courses, and many many other things and uh, students face many different things during the uh, running the course. Remember this is basically a computer science course, in a computer science course there is a fantastic way to check whether students understand everything at every given point. You give a student a programming challenge. It's very difficult to implement a program without understanding how the algorithm behind this program works. And it's very easy to automatically check this program. And we are checking every program they develop in we tel- are language-free, language-blind. They can program in one of ten whatever languages they want. And we can provide them feedback on everything in their program development. So at every moment in the course, just for, program, for, for programming challenges, we know what students understand, a student understands and doesn't understand. So there is a lot, of this, a lot of this infrastructure. And development would not be impossible. Development probably comes to a million dollars. Already, it wouldn't be impossible without significant support, both from uh, United States, through Howard Hughes Foundation, and uh, Russian Ministry of Education, uh, that supported the Russian part of this program. And we were very fortunate uh, that Russian billionaire, Yuri Milner, also supported uh, this project. Uh, So, there uh, there was a lot of efforts invested into this. So let me tell you how it all works, how it works. Imagine that you have a series, let's say, a series of sections that you have to go through to understand certain material. So you move through the course, you understood this, you understood this, and now is your learning breakdown. You cannot go further. But if we detect this learning breakdown, maybe, just maybe, we can design something that will help a person to so a person cannot go further. So maybe we can design something, some additional material, additional tests that allow us to bring this person back on track and help this person to return back uh, to this learning path. But maybe we didn't succeed on the first try, so we continue further. So in the end, he still no, has no choice but to learn and students return back on the main learning path and continues. That sounds very simple, but think about how many hidden remedial material you have to develop, and think about how to deliver this material just in time, so students get this material exactly at the time when this learning breakdown happens. Uh, And interestingly, after you capture this in a content delivery system, every student is mapped to an individual learning path. And uh, so let me, let me tell you how it worked really in practice. And remember that our class size is 100,000 students. So a MOOC for tens of thousands of students is the perfect way to design a compendium of learning breakdowns. So we have 8,500 learning breakdowns recorded just in one round of our course. I would never, like I've been teaching for quarter century, I would never have imagined that my words, and I thought i perfectly delivered the ideas, have been misinterpreted in such enormously wrong way. But this is a test, like evidence, of what's going on in your head. Not at this lecture, because everything's clear, of course. But what's going on in your head when you take calculus. Or you took calculus. Anyway, so what we do with this 8,500 breakdowns? It's a huge document. So we have to go through 4,400 pages and then transforms those 4,400 pages into compendium of learning backgrounds that is 42 pages, and changes to interactive text that is free and available to everybody, resulted in, one, in 128 pages just in one run of the course. Let me give you an idea of what's going on. This is a trivial problem, a start of the course. You have a word, let's say, Five-letter word. And you need to find where this word appears in a long text, let's say, in a text of 1,000 letters. It's a trivial. You think it's difficult to make, if you're a programmer, you would think it's difficult to make a mistake. How can somebody make a mistake? The compendium of learning breakdown for this problem, most common learning breakdown, consists of six elements. They all have to be encoded in the system and reflected. Let me tell you how it works. So this is the content of our course, which is, let's say, roughly for one semester. Let's limit attention to just one week. Okay? And let's talk about the first 10, 15 minutes of the lecture in this this course. And I roughly gave you The series of topics I cover in this 10-15 minutes in the classroom. You can recognize me, this is in the classroom. Or similarly online. It doesn't matter how I dress, how I entertain people. There will be many learning breakdowns, doesn't matter what I do. And in the classroom, you cannot fix that. Because you don't even know what's happening with students in the first row. So let me tell you how our uh, adaptive system looks like. For first 10 minutes of the lectures, that's what's happening. So for everything, for every possible learning breakdown, we have a maze of what students need to do to return back on track. So let me tell you roughly that in every hour of usual lecture, Professor may be investing five, typical professor may be investing five hours in preparation of every lecture. We invest 200 hours. How can a professor like me can compete with an automated system that somebody invented 200 hours? So, and then another thing. After you map every student, into a unique educational path. You have, and you have this compendium of learning breakdown, educational psychology turns into exact science. Just imagine from early childhood, you correspond to your passes in educational systems. Just imagine how much data mining we can do by learning how people actually learn. How much do we know about how people learn in each of our classes? If you're a professor, how many of you have FAQs for your class? I think every class for a semester should have maybe 500 FAQs. And I check with my colleagues, nobody has FAQs. As a result, there are long lines during office hours and our students come to us, asking the same questions over and over again. And we are forced to walk in the class and repeat the same story 15 years in a row. It doesn't make sense to me. And that's why I don't teach anymore. I mean, I don't give classroom lectures anymore. Anyway, so this is just the first thing. The second thing, adaptiveness. And adaptiveness, so the system adapts to the level of students. And if you actually, if we return back to this picture, then you will see some really, really like something is called uh go to Python for biologists track. We detect the student, we actually assume that student know programming can confidently program in this class. But ten minutes later, we detect the student doesn't have a prerequisite in the class. And we send the student back to prerequisite. What we are doing today in our classes, we request prerequisites. But how do we enforce that students really know prerequisite two days after they pass the final exam? Anyway, so I'm very excited about this transformation of each of us into unique learning paths and doing data mining of our, on our learning paths. And I hope people will find the educational twins—people whose somebody may be living in completely different a country whose educational passes are similar, at least in the last three years of life, to your educational passes. And maybe we can learn a lot from learning uh, uh, failures of this person by designing our own educational program. Anyway, adaptiveness. By adaptiveness, I mean adaptation to students, but I also mean professors should adapt. Professor, after giving every class, professor should go collect all learning breakdowns and change materials based on whatever learning breakdowns are reported. And last but not least, modularity. Uh, if you take classes like bioinformatics that is now pre- exists in all universities, there are probably 300 professors teaching it at every given moment, over many, maybe not, I think more, and basically repeating the same stories with small variation from three, four major textbooks. Uh, and MATE shouldn't be monolith. It should provide input from many professors. It should be extendable. You can add a block or you can remove a block depending on your personal preferences. Anyway, so uh, I explain how it works. For me, it works in the following, day, in the following way. Every uh, in the, my, like this quarter, I just ended the quarter and flew to uh, Sydney. Uh, in the morning, uh, my class is at 6.30 in the evening. By 10 a.m., every student in the class is supposed to file a learning breakdown and percentage of understanding in the course. The only reason you don't file a learning breakdown is if you report it 100. Not many students report 100, usually 20% because they know, if they report 100, I will be asking them in the class, uh, uh, asking to answer whatever question other people ask in the class. And I give points to every student at every session of the class. Uh, so I come to the class and ask the student to show me the level of understanding. That would be 100%, that would be 50 that will be zero. And we go through all this learning breakdown, and either I address them in the class or I ask students in the class to address them. Nobody texts in my class. Everybody is a edge. Everybody can be asked at any given moment of time. And, uh, uh, and I, after the first couple of weeks, I know st- all students in a 100-person class by name, and I actually know a little bit about how they think. It takes me roughly eight hours from 10 a.m. till 6 p.m. to go through the 100 learning breakdown, digesting it, preparing custom PowerPoint presentation addressed specifically to, for this student. Uh, but I think that's what we own to students because students pay for our classes. By the way, I have this lecture completely recorded. And I actually, instead of giving this lecture, I just can push a button we could switch off the light, and you can watch my lecture. You didn't ask many questions. Uh, and uh, instead of me presenting it here, and I can catch up on my emails. while we don't do this? Well, maybe you just wanted to see me. But think about this. When we do it with students, we actually charge them a dollar a minute in this classroom. How many of you would still prefer to see me rather than my exact presentation on video, but be charged one dollar remaining. Please raise your hands. One person, two, oh my God, three, thank you, four. Okay, great. <laughs> okay, anyway, uh, so let me tell you just a little, a little bit about what is happening with this specialization we have. Our specialization is done with, uh, in partnership with Illumina. Illumina is a leader in genome sequencing, pioneer and leader in genome sequencing technology. And each of these courses is four weeks. So they're roughly equivalent to maybe two weeks of traditional uh, offline course. But this is like, in online, the units are completely different. The setup is completely different. For example, it is ridiculous to teach into units of 50 minutes. The human brain is not designed for this. Human brain is designed for 10 minutes. It's proven many times over by educational psychologists. Why do we continue doing this? It is ridiculous to give homework assignment in a week after students learn something, and had educational breakdown that homework assignment is designed to fix. I give my, all my homeworks in the first day of the classes. All assignments in the first day of the classes. Anyway, then we check. And also, I do not believe that video format that is dominant workhorse of online education is the right technology. I think mainly video format is for inspiration, not for delivering uh, complex concepts. We just kind of follow this verbal format uh, of classroom in online, but uh, our principle is most of learning should happen, of complex subjects, should happen from the text because it's much more precise. Uh, And uh, of course we have, everything is also recorded, so some students like watching lecture. But when we test students and ask them, what do they do, do they prefer, interactive text or video lectures, most of them prefer interactive text. And some of them never watch video lectures. Uh, And we were actually very proud. This is a complex course. This is essentially a master level course. And students work 12 hours a week on average for 10 weeks in the first run of the course. Now the course is longer and more complex. And this is our overall satisfaction and most students are very satisfied or satisfied. Uh, Anyway, returning back to the Bloom conundrum. uh, I believe that when this industrial revolution and educational technology happens. And for me, without a doubt, in every course that you teach today, at least in my field, like say computer science, or mathematics, at least at undergraduate level, there will be MOOC 2.0. By MOOC 2.0, I mean MOOC with investment of the order, let's say, at least 300,000, half a million dollars. And some universities do thousands of, like Georgia Tech, two years ago had 21 courses like this, each course, with at least $300,000 investment. How can we compete? And I believe that a mate doesn't just facilitate transition to the flipped classroom, which makes classroom lecture irrelevant. It necessitates this transition because otherwise the students will go, as soon as, uh, universities have two functions, education and certification. It is artificially bundled. As soon as it is unbundled, the students have a choice how to learn. They will go to the best uh, online or offline, whatever they select, way to get knowledge and then get certification from whatever university they want. Anyway, uh, so an MAIT is essentially a 24-7 teaching assistant, an opportunity to free real TA teaching assistant from monotonous work of testing. Generation and generations of our TAs were testing the same homeworks so over and over again. Uh, all testing should be done Automatically. Uh, And, most important thing, this new format allows the professor to really interact with students. Anyway, I know what you're thinking, I know that most of you disagree with me, and I know that you are all very busy. And this professor here probably thinks I'm a busy professor, I don't have thousands of hours for a mate. The way I have always taught works fine. And it probably works fine for this professor, but does it work for students? So this, I think this is important question that we all should think about. And it doesn't work for many students. And it also, we can ask, does it work for Shadat, who is 13 years old, who took and excelled in our master level course. And I don't think it would be possible in the classroom. I don't know how many hours he invested into this. Uh, And I wanted to finish with what I feel my high school teacher would do today if he would turn 50 today. I think that in addition to establishing brick and mortar schools for gifted children in mathematics, he would actually establish huge online presence and develop intelligent tutoring system that will allow not only fortunate kids who ended up in these schools, but kids from all over the world to get roughly the same level of education. Remember, I told you that Kalmagorov spoke twice faster than a normal person. It was a big problem for me when I was Enter it in the school at the ripe age of 14. But if it was online, it wouldn't be the problem, because I would just listen at it at speed 0.5. <laughs> anyway, let me finish, uh, and I' am enormously thankful to my former student, uh, who is now at Carnegie Mellon, Philip Campo. Uh, who was really partner in crime for the last four years. And I'm very grateful to many people, there are many more, they just don't fit on the slides that contributed to this uh, development. And I thank I don't know if I'm on time. I'm on time, right? Perfect time, yeah. All right, thank you.